late. So I'm gonna have to read the text, which is not an issue, but a couple of housekeeping things. Before I start, Eric did tell me there'd be about seven people here, and that's why I did agree to do this. <laughs> and there is a lot more than seven of you here, but that's okay. Uh, thankfully, this is not my first rodeo show, but typically when I did preach, it was about to seven people. It was that kind of a, a small church. So something new, but something obviously that we can adapt and overcome to. A couple other housekeeping things. I have a tendency every now and then to speak Jerseyese. I don't know if anybody knows what Jerseyese is. You kind of start rambling and talking really fast. If I do that, Dr. Joe, you can come up and give me that little, that little smack on the face if you have to. <laughs> uh, one of my concerns in uh, doing this text, and again, we can blame Eric on this one as well. <laughs> I was not going to do Romans 8. Kind of went up and thought of Romans 8 at first. And then I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to do Romans 8. Probably going to do something else. And Eric's like, nah, you're going you're to crush this. You'll be fine. And then started getting into the text itself, and it was me who was crushed as I dealt with this text. I think I either texted him yesterday or the day before and pretty much told him I was hit with like lefts and rights as I was going through this text. So a very heavy text. And uh, before we get in there, one last side little thing, kind of to lighten up the atmosphere. Some of you might get this reference, some of you might not. Never had to wear one of these before. I kind of feel like a 90s R&B singer wearing this thing, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> All right, so getting into the text, going to be reading from Romans chapter 8, verse 1 through 13. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit 
you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let us pray one more time before we get into this portion of Scripture. Father, we again thank you for your word and how you use us, use it rather to guide us and sustain us. Lord, we pray that as your word is preached today that you would be glorified, your people would be edified and encouraged, and you would use me as your instrument, Father. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. So of course, as we uh, look at chapter 8, and I know you've heard this before, one of the first things that we have to do is determine what the therefore is there for. I know you've heard that before, and this is something that I've definitely struggled with, um, probably up until yesterday, as I, I texted Eric yesterday and had a, a very serious struggle with this text. Looking through the commentaries, some went all the way back to Romans 5, some 5, 1 through 11, others 5, 12 through 21, and saying that that is the context of this portion of Scripture. Others, which is the traditional view, looked right back to the immediate context of chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. So to uh, make a long story short, so you don't have my whole week of struggle that I went through, which had me beat up, I'm going to hold to the traditional view and believe that the text is bringing us back to chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. Now, before I get you to how I got to that conclusion, let us go back to chapter 5, only because it's still a section that is comprised within this text. So if we're going to break down this text, we're really looking at chapters 5 through 8. So if you remember in chapter 5, if we go back, if you have a Bible, I hear some pages turning, which is fine. We read that we have peace with God through faith. Right? We're justified by faith through Christ. And then as we continue in chapter 5, we see that there is death in Adam, but there is life in the second Adam. And that second Adam is none other than Jesus Christ. Chapter 6, we see that we are dead to sin and sin no longer, or I'm sorry, and we're no longer slaves to it, but instead we are slaves to righteousness. And this is just a brief synopsis I'm giving you of all these chapters. And then in chapter 7, we see in verses 1 through 6 that we're released from the law. And then in verse 12, we see that the law exposes our sin. And then we get to the fame 7, 13 through 25. And what made it difficult for me was determining and I'm going to use a Greek word here, the ego in the chapter, and I'm not talking about lego my ego when I say my ego. I'm talking about the I that Paul is dealing with or the individual that Paul is dealing with in these verses. And to make a long story short, what he is dealing with in these verses is the struggle that the believer faces between sin and righteousness. So the, the believer... Although he is justified by faith in Christ, as, although rather he is no longer a slave to sin, still struggles with sin. And all of us can attest to that. So as we look back to 7.13 through 25, here is what we see. There is nothing wrong with the law. 
right? In 7.12, Paul tells us that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. In 7.14, he tells us that the law is spiritual. In 7.16, he says, I agree with the law that it is good. So time and time again, we see that the law is good. There's nothing wrong with the law. But unfortunately, (laughs) there's something wrong with us. We cannot follow the law, and that's evident in our sin. The more we try to follow the law, the more we see we sin. I was talking to Pastor Daniel as I was explaining to him what I'm going to be going over today. And when I was in my old church, I was a member of the OPC. For those of you who do not know what that is, that's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in that church, we're very creedal. And what I mean by that is we uh, are very confessional, and we look to the old creeds of the faith and study them extensively. And one of the things that I had to study before becoming an elder was the Westminster Standards. If you're not familiar with the Westminster Standards, they're comprised of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And pretty much it's composed of questions and answers, which pretty much give us a better basis and a better understanding for our faith. And I remember going over the Ten Commandments as I had to uh, study up and becoming an elder. And as you look at the Ten Commandments, one of the things that you'll see in the Larger Catechism is, what are the Ten Commandments? It's one of the questions that I'll ask you. And then it goes into each commandment and what is the requirement of each one of those commandments. And then it kind of hits you as it says, you know, what is it when you fail to meet those requirements and gives you a whole list of sins? So here I was for years thinking that I'm meeting these requirements as I look at them from the surface. And then you really dig deep and see what each one of these commandments require and you're slapped in the face. And you see time and time again that you fail to meet the righteous requirements of God. That's one thing when we're not in the faith, but it's another thing when we claim to have faith and we still see that we're failing to meet those righteous requirements. So now looking at that, I have to ask the same question that Paul asks. Is there something wrong with the law? Because all of us should be able to say the same thing. As I look at the law's requirements, I can't uphold them. So obviously the problem must be with the law, right? (laughs) No, the problem isn't with the law. It's the sin that dwells within us that keeps us from upholding the standards of the law. And Paul digs deep into this as he looks or in detail tells us in verses 13 through 20 that this struggle is not only for the unbeliever, but it's also for the believer. He describes this struggle as follows. In 7.13, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In 7.14, he says, I am of the flesh sold under sin. In 7.15, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And then as we look at 17 through 20, he tells us that sin dwells within us and keeps us from doing the good we want, and instead has us doing the evil we do not want to do. 
So again, there's nothing wrong with the law, there's something wrong with us. The only thing, if we are gonna say that is wrong with the law, it is this, it cannot bring us salvation. The law cannot provide for us salvation. And now, as we move forward to chapter eight, we're gonna see what is required for us to have that salvation. But going back to our, our problem in chapter 7, verses 13 to 25, as Paul looks at himself, he says, who, who will deliver me from this body of death? We've got to remember that the wages of sin is death. Right? So as I continue in sin, if I'm relying on my flesh to overcome that sin, the wages of sin is death. So there's only one who can deliver us from those wages of sin, and that is Jesus Christ. And then he gets in to chapter 8. And for the believer, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he's emphatic in saying, only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. I'm going to get into that in a little bit, but looking forward, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, verse 3, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So we're told here that in spite of our struggle with sin, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. Verse two, those who are in Christ have been set free from the law as to salvation. We are freed from its demands and its curse. Why? Not because of anything we have done, but because of what Christ has done or what God has done through Christ. Now it's important that we Look at the law and its demands. Does anybody know what the demand of the law is? The demand of the law is perfect obedience. And that word perfect means perfect. <laughs> I always equate it to uh, baseball. I don't know if we have any baseball fans out here, but like a perfect game. I'm a huge baseball fan. I love pitching duels. So a perfect game is what? No hits, no walks, no errors, no runs. The pitcher and the team have done everything perfectly. So once we have a hit batter or a walk or someone makes an error, it is no longer a perfect game. Once you sin once, that's all it takes. You are no longer perfect. So it does not matter what you do here on from then, right? You have missed the standard of perfect righteousness. You no longer meet the requirement that God requires. And that's important for us to remember. Now the irony in all this is that we already start out in the negative. Now we start out in the negative and we saw that in chapter 5. Why? Because we are born in Adam. So because of his original sin, which was imputed to us, we are sinners. 
Now, some might say that that's not fair, that I'm equated as a sinner because of what Adam has done. But here's the thing, you also actually sin. You fail to meet the righteous requirements that God requires as well. And just in case you think, because sometimes we do have that type of thought in our head, that if the roles were reversed and it was you in the garden, and you would have obeyed God's law perfectly, guess what? God knew what he was doing, and you would have fell short of his righteous requirement as well. So perfect righteousness, and it's not only perfect righteousness, but it's personal, perfect, perpetual righteousness. I always call it the three Ps. That is the standard that God requires, and it's a standard that we cannot uphold. So we need a redeemer, and as we saw over the last several weeks, we need someone to reconcile us to God. And there is only one who can reconcile us to God, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. It is only through him that we can be set free from this dominion of sin. And only those who have faith in him will be set free, not only from this dominion of sin, but also from the righteous wrath of God. And we see that as we look at here, we see that as God condemned Christ in the flesh as man, as he was our perfect representative. He condemned sin in the flesh. So sin was condemned in the person of Christ. And all those who belong to Christ have been set free through him. So Christ came as man and fulfilled the law on our behalf through his active and his passive obedience. And his active obedience is simply him perfectly following the law of God. And that's why God delighted in him. And his passive obedience is him taking on that punishment that we all deserved, which is the death on the cross. So he had God's wrath, wrath rather, poured out on him on our behalf. So gives us the gospel in a nutshell, saying that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And also telling us that although we struggle with sin, that is where we are to look. And this is where I want pretty much, you know, if you've been in your happy place for the last 15, 20 minutes, that's fine. But here comes the crux of what needs to be said. If part one is true, that Christ died on behalf of sinners, and that is the only way of salvation, why would we turn from that? And then why would we rest in the flesh, thinking that the flesh would be able to redeem us? Or why would we rest in the law thinking that we need to do the law in order to be redeemed as well? Or, as Eric brings up many times, to be pleasing in the sight of God. Now the interesting thing that as we move on is we talk about walking and living according to the flesh versus the spirit. And here's where I kind of got confused. Said for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So you're going to see like a going back and forth between the flesh and the Spirit. Those who live, walk according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. To set the mind on the flesh is death. They're hostile to God, and they cannot please God. If I'm looking at the flesh, to live in the flesh is to pretty much stay with indwelling sin and go to the world's pattern. But those who walk, live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. 
To set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Those who walk and live according to the Spirit have the Spirit dwelling in them and ultimately will be resurrected. So putting this all together, what we need to do and what we need to understand is, as Christians, we cannot turn back to the law. And Paul is showing us that going back to chapter 7, verses 13 to 25. As he looks at the law, he sees that his sin is exposed. Again, he asks, who's going to deliver him from that body of sin? And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, as I just mentioned, he shows us that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Why? Because we've been set free. So the major question that we have to ask ourselves is if we've been set free and now we're moving forward and we're still seeing that we still struggle with sin, why would we go back to the law? Why would we go back to that which exposes our sin? And that's a question that we need to ask ourselves because that is our, our tendency. I know for me, that is my tendency. I, I measure my Christian life up to the law. And as long as I'm doing these things, God is pleased and all is well. But when we do that, what are we showing we're resting in? Our own efforts and following the law instead of the person and work of Jesus Christ. So some things for us to remember. Number one, we just don't set our minds on the Spirit. So I know you heard that in the text. Those who set their minds on the Spirit walk according to the Spirit. So you just don't wake up one morning and say, I feel like walking according to the Spirit today. <laughs> That's not how it works. The Spirit dwells in you, and that allows you to walk according to the Spirit. Secondly, as Christians, we don't walk according to the flesh. We are to take off the old man. So one question that I have to ask is, why do we turn back to the flesh so often? If we're called to turn from the flesh, why do we turn to the flesh so often? And I'm getting into sanctification in our walk right now. And the reason why is, I know for myself, again, and coming from another church where it was all about the standards. Why do we think that following a certain standard is going to get us in right standing with God? Why do we think that if I do certain things correctly that I'm going to be in right standing with God? Why do we think that, and this is for my wife and I, if I just homeschool correctly, I'm going to be in right standing with God. I know for myself today, if I just preach this sermon perfectly, I'm going to be in right standing with God. And just think about any day that you go forward with. I, I know for many of you, and I'm not picking on you as I say this, it's 2018 coming upon us. And many of us have probably made a list for ourselves what we're going to do in the upcoming year to better ourselves. Why? And for what purpose? 
because that is the flesh operating within you. And one of the questions I have then is on that list is the first thing, get closer to Jesus. Which it probably is not, right? It's probably I want to lose weight. <laughs> want to get my PR up on my bench or whatever the case may be. We have all these other things that we want to do, but it's setting our mind on Christ the first thing that we want to do. And more than likely, that answer is no. Even for myself today, a question that I had to ask myself, you know, is the purpose of my sermon to come up here and show how smart I am? Or is the purpose of my sermon to glorify God? It's a question that I have to ask myself. My flesh would say, come up here, sound theological sound good and be impressive. Maybe they'll ask you to preach again. <laughs> Maybe someone will say you did a great job. But is that the purpose of coming up here to preach? Your pastors, when they come up here to preach, is that their purpose in coming up here? No, the purpose should be to glorify God. And the only way that we can do that is by living in the Spirit. So I encourage you, and this goes to follow, live, walk by the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 through 25, I'm going to read for you. I'm old school, so yeah, I have to turn to my Bible. I'm sorry. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. That should sound familiar from what we just read in Romans. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice how long that list is. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. How? By being in the Spirit, not by following the law a little better or a little more. So, am I saying that the law is bad? No. Am I saying, as we look at the Ten Commandments, to not honor the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to not love your neighbor as I sum them up? No. What I am saying is, do not depend on that, though, for salvation, thinking that, hey, if I do that a little better, then I'm pleasing in God's eyes. Or, also don't use it as a marker or as a benchmark for where you are in the faith. Because that's another dangerous position to be in. One that I have been in before as well, where you, know, you think you're at a certain level, and all those who do not reach that level as well, or all those who you do not believe are at that same level that you are, now we look down on them. And then we might even ask the question, how can that person even say they're a Christian when they do this? 
And at that point, it's time for us to remember it's not you who determines who the Christian is. It is God who determines who the Christian is by securing them in Christ. So to wrap everything up, I wish this was a lot better, but again, this passage had me rocked. <laughs> um, the law cannot save you, so stop turning back to it. That's, that's one point I definitely want to hit home. It cannot save you, so stop turning back to it. Please stop performance-based Christianity. Uh, one thing I, I've heard time and time again, and I've at least heard it in the right context here, but being radical. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that term before. You know, we need people to be radical Christians. And then, of course, being a radical Christian means that I'm going out there, I'm being missional, I'm preaching the gospel, I'm doing this, that, and the other thing. But guess what? That's still another measurement. So then what are you saying about those who do not do that? Or what are you saying about those who are faithful in their home and just only have the opportunity to do it in the home? Back in the day when I used to go to a Pentecostal-style church, nothing against Pentecostalism, just in case, yeah. But I always used to hear people have the benchmark of how many people got saved through their ministry. So, of course, that person is a faithful preacher. Why? Because many people have been saved through their ministry. So now we equate who they are by how many people they've gotten saved. It's, again, the wrong analogy that we have. It's performance-based. Piety came from a sect of Christianity that heavily were influenced by the Puritans. You know, so you hear time and time again about the piety of the Puritans, and, you know, of course, if you prick the Puritan, what would the blood do? <laughs> you know, they, they, it wouldn't be any blood. It would be, like, all Scripture coming out of them. That's how much, you know, that's how pious the Puritans are. Or the prayer warrior. You know, I, I, I got to pray like so-and-so. If I could just pray like so-and-so. You guys see where we're going with this? It's all performance-based Christianity. And what we're doing is we're taking the focus off of the one who saved us, which is Jesus Christ. In closing, why submit to the yoke of slavery that cannot set you free? I want you to ponder that as you go throughout this next week. Why go back to a law that cannot save you? Even as you look at your sanctification and growing in Christ, why not just rest in Jesus instead of turning to something that had you in bondage? Also, why go back to the flesh, thinking that in your own strength that it's going to be you to get you to where you need to be? Turn to Christ. As you go in this new year, look to Jesus because he is the one who has saved you and he is the one that's going to bring your salvation to completion. Thank you.